Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5 today. We've been working our way through John chapter 5 over the last few weeks in our study of the book of John, as we have seen that John presents to us that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And in John chapter 5, things began there with, with one of the signs that John gives that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life on his name. And that sign was that on the Sabbath day, Jesus came into Jerusalem and at the pool of Bethesda healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And that led to an inevitable confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel who uh, were offended that he did such a work on the Sabbath day, began to persecute him. And then Jesus, we, we looked at it over the last few weeks, he, he, claims, he, he claims to be equal with God. We saw the equality of the Son with the Father. Last week we looked in, at the two resurrections and the, and the uh, evidence of Jesus' deity in the fact that he will be the one who has the power of resurrection, will stand before him as the judge of all eternity. And Jesus continues now in John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 30 today, and go to the end of the chapter and see this, that there is evidence that demands a verdict. He's been speaking uninterrupted to these religious leaders, and now he's showing them there is evidence uh, that he is who he says he is, and that requires them to make a decision about him. John records in John chapter 5, starting in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he was born witness. Uh, he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given to me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have eternal life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Father, we, again, are so thankful for the opportunity to come here today and to study your word together. We thank you for the few minutes we have set aside to open the word of God, and we ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds today. Lord, there are, there are uh, so many other things that we have going on in our lives. There are, there are doubtless things that, that have, we have wrestled with this week or things that, that we've told no one else about. And Lord, we ask that over the next few minutes you would allow us just to focus on what you have to show us today because, Lord, in the end of it, you're the answer of all things. We pray that you would confront our hearts with your truth today, that you would show us who Jesus is, that he is God, that he is above all. 
that he is the answer to all things. And as Christians today who are gathered here today, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to more and more live in a way that would reflect you to others. Lord, you, if we are your children, you have already declared us holy and righteous. Now, Lord, you have called us to live out that reality in you. Lord, for one who hears these things today, who does not know where they will spend eternity, who has wrestled with these things, has played the game, whatever it may be, Lord, we ask that you would today confront them with the truth of who Jesus is and their need to make a decision to trust in him. We ask that everything is said and done here today would lift you up, would honor you, would glorify you, and that we'd walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your truth and your Holy Spirit has applied it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. There's an interesting phenomenon that researchers have observed in human behavior, and it's called intentional blindness. And ladies, that doesn't mean that, that that's what your husband is every time he goes in the fridge and you have to come help him, okay? But the basic idea is that as human beings, we are prone to missing an unexpected stimuli while we're focused on something else. It's very fascinating. In 1999, Harvard researchers proved this with a short video experiment. The video contains six people passing basketballs back and forth. At the beginning of the video, you are instructed to, to watch half of the group and, say, and tell, at the end of the video, you have to tell how many times that group passed the basketballs back and forth. While you're engaged in that process, a man in a gorilla suit walks out into the video and, and stands in the middle of the screen and beats his chest. He's on screen for nine seconds. And researchers found that half the people who watched the video never saw the gorilla because they were so focused on something else. Now, we have just totally messed up that because if you go watch the video now, you're going to see it, okay? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. But we often miss what's right in front of us because we aren't looking for it, we don't expect it, or we don't believe it. And this is a fascinating phenomenon when you, when you think about it. However, there is a far more serious issue we face as human beings, and that is spiritual blindness. Because we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, we do not recognize the trouble we are in because of that sin and the solution that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And even when faced with the clear evidence of God's word, many will often deliberately turn away from God and choose their sin instead. And here in John chapter 5, Jesus is confronting these religious leaders of Israel who have been persecuting him. As we said a minute ago, they, they didn't like that he performed miracles on the Sabbath. And they deemed him blasphemous for claiming to be equal with God. And although Jesus gave them the truth, they were blind to that truth. And now, Jesus will call on further evidences of his deity and will show that this evidence demands a verdict. And that's what it all comes down to, that the evidence of who Jesus is forces you to make a decision about him. I've said it before, I'll say it again, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. And sadly, these religious leaders that Jesus speaks to are condemned by what they hear Jesus say. The evidence that Jesus presents, proves that they had everything they needed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but still refused to do so. What we see in this passage is the clear evidence of Jesus' deity requires my personal response to him and does not excuse rejection. Friends, there will be no one 
who stands before God and said, I didn't know. I didn't know I was a sinner. I didn't know that I was responsible to someone else. You and I must come face to face with who Jesus is. We must come face to face with what it means that he is God. What it means, one, for our eternal soul, two, Christians, what it means for the way we live our lives. This has a bearing on all of our lives. And so let's look here today at what Jesus says and what Jesus, uh, and what Jesus shares with these religious authorities and what it means in our hearts and lives today. And the first thing you see in verses 30 through 32, you see Jesus states that there here is a necessity for further evidence. Jesus says here in verse 30, there's a summary claim here of his equality with God. He says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Verse 30 is a transition verse. It's transitioning us from Jesus' statements he's made previously about his equality with God and the coming resurrection and his judgment of all mankind, and he's transitioning us now into the closing statements on himself, his deity, and the response of the religious leaders. And it reinforces for those with him there and for us today the inescapable truth that Jesus is God. He can perform all the actions of deity and execute perfect judgment because he, can, he says here in verse 30 that he can do nothing without the Father's approval. And this is not because Jesus is a subservient created being who says I can do nothing without without this other being, God's approval, it is because he and the Father, as he has said before, are one. So therefore, everything that Jesus does, the Father does. There is only one God, but he is manifested in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each performs specific duties and is always acting in accordance with the others because they are one God. And Jesus is once again highlighting his equality with God. Now, he is not blaspheming God. He's not claiming to usurp God or merely to be ordained by God in his work. He is claiming to be what he is. He is God. Therefore, the Jewish leaders were accusing him of wrongdoing. They were by, and when they did so, they were then, what Jesus is saying is, if you're accusing me of doing wrong, then by my very nature, you're accusing God the Father of doing wrong, which to them is an impossible thought. But Jesus, being God and knowing all things, perceives the the, the thoughts and the feelings of all who are there that day, and he sees that there is a perceived need for further evidence. He goes on in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that witness which he witnesses of me is true. So perceiving the thoughts and desires of those who are gathered, Jesus now presents a very convicting truth. He says that if he testifies of himself, he will not be viewed as true. And that's what that statement in verse 31 means. When Jesus says here, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, he is not saying that what he says about himself will not be true. Because as God, he is the only one who can give unadulterated truth, whether it be about himself or something else. However, what he's saying is that those who are standing there that day wouldn't recognize the truth. Now, in our minds, from a legal standpoint, we can understand that. 
you and I, when we're asked to, to sign a legal document and, and have a witness, you're not allowed to be your own witness, right? Last year, my wife and I did that wonderful thing. We filled out our wills and all of those good things, you know, just things you love to do, okay? And you have to have two people to be a witness when you have it notarized. So we did. And it wasn't ourselves. It was somebody else. And and in the same way, God's law in the Old Testament, he set forth the expectation that, that in order to prosecute someone, you would need two to three witnesses, and so what Jesus is saying here is that, that if he testifies to himself, even though he is God, the people who are there aren't going to view his claims as true without other witnesses. And so Jesus will present the witnesses to his claims of deity. He has claimed equality with God. He has claimed power to raise the dead and, and, and the authority to preside in judgment over all as given to him by God the Father. And if he is the only one who will present these things. He knows these claims that, that will may be made against him and the clamor for more proof that will undoubtedly rain down. Now, Jesus doesn't need to present these things for his own justification or his own satisfaction. He says in verse 32, there's another that bears witness of him, and I know that witness that he witnesses of me is true. There's an old saying, and it goes like this. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I understand that statement that, that while it is true, you, 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 take a, you must take a step of faith in believing God if you, will settle, if you want to settle your own eternity, heart, and anything else that you submit to God in. But, but I've always submitted that perhaps a better statement is God said it and that settles it. Because in the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's still true. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, there is another who testifies to me. He's talking of the Father as he and the Father are one. But Jesus will still present the evidence of his claims. Why? Not for himself, but for those around him. One of the things um, this year I've been studying in my Bible uh, is about the attributes of God. And one of the things that I was fascinated with over the last couple of weeks is, is looking at these what we call incommunicable attributes of God, those things that are true about God because he is God. You know, things like he is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, Right? Uh, omniscient, that's all-knowing, and sometimes as parents, don't you wish you were that way, right? But one of the things that he talks about is that he is eternal from eternity past and the future, that that he's unchanging, that he's infinite, and and I was just struck by the fact that we are such finite, fickle beings, yet God relates to us in ways that we can understand. Isn't that an amazing thing? And some of us aren't very bright, okay, (laughs) and need a little help. And God continues to, to, to communicate to us in these ways. And I think what you have here in this passage, you have Jesus who doesn't need to present any more truth. He is God. What he says is true. But he's going to present to these religious leaders in ways that they can relate and in ways that will leave them without any excuse whatsoever. He's going to say, okay, here are the witnesses, and there are four of them that Jesus gives here. There are four witnesses to the, his deity and his claims. And in the long run, This evidence that he presents today will be levied heavily against those who do not respond in obedience and faith. The evidence leaves us without excuse before our creator. So we see in verses 33 through 40 the numerous evidences of deity, these four different ones he presents. In verses 33 through 35, the first one that Jesus presents is the witness of John the Baptist. He says, you have sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. 
John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, and we spent time studying him earlier in John's Gospel in John chapter 1 and later in John chapter 3. And John was widely regarded throughout the nation of Israel, including the religious leaders, as a prophet, which indeed he was. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was given a special mission. (coughs) Excuse me. Sometimes it sneaks up on you. He was, his special mission was to prepare the nation of Israel for Jesus' arrival. And in John chapter 1, we have already seen an event that Jesus references here. He says in verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. The religious leadership of Israel had sent in John chapter 1 a delegation to John the Baptist and, and, and they wanted to, to ask him some questions. Specifically, they wanted to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that has been promised throughout the scriptures that we've been looking for? He emphatically denied that he was the Messiah, instead pointed to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, we read this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is John's testimony, and it corroborates exactly who Jesus says he is. For 400 years, at the end of what we would call the Old Testament period, for 400 years, Israel received no new prophetic word. When John came declaring this message of repentance and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, he broke that silence. God broke that silence through John. And then John clearly called out Jesus as that Messiah. And again, Jesus reiterates that this evidence from John isn't for himself, but for their sakes. Verse 34, Jesus says, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus doesn't doesn't depend on the testimony of John to establish his truth, but God uses John in, in the perfect plan of salvation. And Jesus says, I tell you this testimony again for your sake, that you would hear the message of who I am, and you would be saved from your sin. He cited the words of this prophet to show them their need of salvation through himself, and that's needed by all. And they were compelled by the witness of a man that they recognized as a prophet to believe the claims of Jesus. He says in verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John was a man who was consumed with the mission and message of God that he had received. He was a man who burned zealously for the work of God. Jesus calls him here a burning and shining lamp. He shone in a dark world. And it's an interesting uh, statement and and, and choice of words that Jesus uses here. He does not call John the light. He calls him a lamp. A lamp has no light in and of itself. It has to be given light from somewhere else. And that is exactly what John's life was. He reflected and burned with the light of God. This is exactly what God calls all of those who trust in him to be. He calls you to be a light shining ablaze in a dark world. 
Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and say you're a really good Christian, right? Say, oh, they must go to Beaverton Baptist Church. No, what do they say? And that they may glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You and I are not called to be beacons of light so that people can look at us and say, well, they must be a good person. We're called to be beacons of light that we can point to God. And that is exactly what John did. That is exactly what Jesus says he was. One author said it this way, our witness will only be effective if God ignites it. And John did this very effectively. And for a time, Jesus says in verse 35, the nation basked in this light. The people came to hear the first prophet in 400 years. They wanted to see the wild man in the desert and hear what he had to say for themselves. Some heard his message of repentance and took it to heart. They repented of their sin and they were baptized to proclaim that this is what I'm doing. I'm repenting of my sin, preparing myself for the coming of the Messiah. But many could not handle the strong message of repentance the indictment of the nation, and the call for preparation of the Messiah. And when the Messiah arrived on the scene and John pointed him out, the reception to John grew cold. Why? Because he pointed out a man who wasn't really the Messiah? No, because he pointed out a man who was the Messiah who didn't fit their definition of the Messiah. They had decided long ago, this is who he's going to be. This is what he's going to be like. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going to do these things and those things. And when Jesus didn't do those things, the reception to John's testimony grew cold because, hey, Jesus didn't fit who I thought he should be. Eventually, the thrill was over. And the purpose of John's ministry was missed by a great many. And if you know anything about the history of Israel... And anything about the nature of mankind, that isn't really surprising. I mean, here is a nation, God's chosen people, who don't have the greatest track record if you read the Old Testament, right? Which, by the way, is an incredible testimony of the mercy and grace of God. And by the way, it's really easy to to open the Old Testament and say, man, I can't believe these people. We do the same things. But God in his grace and his mercy continue to send his messengers. John the Baptist would pass from the scene. He was imprisoned and eventually beheaded by the king Herod. But his faithful testimony lives on. And it stands here, Jesus says in these verses, as, as the first piece of evidence, the first witness that Jesus is who he says he is. And now Jesus moves on to evidence number two. Not only do we see the word and the testimony of John the Baptist, but secondly, we see the testimony of Jesus' own works in verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Although John the Baptist's testimony is great, and although it carries great weight, Jesus says that this second evidence is greater than that. Greater than the first prophet, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the first prophetic word in 400 years. The evidence is this, the evidence of his works that he has performed. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 5, this is where it all started with this whole dialogue. That Jesus went to Bethesda. 
And a man who had, been, who had been invalid for 38 years had not been able to walk. Jesus looked at him and said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And as I told you that day, no physical therapy needed. He got up and he obeyed. Why? Because Jesus is God. John says, and I told you before, John, John calls these things, he doesn't call them miracles in his, in his gospel, he calls them signs. And that word means a, a proof of authentication. And next week, we're going to see another one of these signs that Jesus does. And the things that Jesus does, the actions that he performs, prove unequivocally that he is God because he is doing things that no one else can do. Throughout this gospel, and if you take the rest of the, of the gospels, the three synoptic gospels, you will find at least three dozen of these recorded works. And John says at the end of his gospel that, that, that all of these things couldn't be written down that Jesus did. Or if you did, the entire world wouldn't contain those books. The mission Jesus carried out and the works that he performed were exactly in line with God's wishes and God's promises of the Messiah. Jesus' power over all things leaves all without excuse before him. So you have the word of John the Baptist. You have the works of Jesus Christ. And number three, the third evidence that Jesus presents is, is the word of the Father. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have, neither seen, you, have, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. And speaking of God the Father, Jesus now calls on him as the third evidence. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And he also testified of his Son's work. Twice In Jesus' ministry, God the Father spoke from heaven, one at his baptism and one on the Mount of Transfiguration. However, Jesus is also the revelation of the Father. Everything that Jesus speaks is from the Father. But the evidence, though presented, was not accepted. You can see the pattern here as Jesus continues on, on presenting these evidences, he, he's, he's already showing them that they are indicted because what he said they do not believe. He has given them the truth. He has told them who he is and what he is doing. He's told them what he will eventually do, but they do not accept his word. So therefore, they reject the evidence that God the Father has presented them. These ones standing before him had both the Old Testament scriptures and the revelation of the Son of God, the living word of God standing before them, but it did not, as Jesus said, abide in them. Why? Because they had hardened their hearts. The testimony was not flawed. The testimony was not incomplete. They simply refused to place their trust in the truth. And this is a tragic truth of their world and ours today. That many display a dark ignorance to God by rejecting Jesus. And what they do, what we do in our day, is exactly what the religious leaders did in their day. We exalt ourselves above God and say, I know better. I can get there myself. I'm the one in control. I'm the one in charge. I'm right and he is wrong. Jesus says, There's only one way. And so we have 
three evidences presented and clearly rejected as Jesus has shown. And now the fourth. And this is one that was so dear to the hearts of God's people that it's going to take up these last couple verses in this section. And then Jesus is going to continue as he shows the non-responsiveness of man's heart on the same line here in just a second. We see that the evidence of the scriptures that are presented. You search the scriptures for in them you think you, will have, you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Jesus says, he says in verse 39 very clearly that those who are listening are students of the word of God. He says that they search the scriptures. That idea of the word search implies a diligent examination. They didn't just roll out a scroll and put their finger down and look for something and say, oh, that's really nice. But they took the word of God. That they took The religious leaders of Israel gave much time to reading and knowing the Old Testament, especially the Torah or the law of God. And what they would do is they would break it apart. They would turn over its meaning in their minds. They would discuss it. And Jesus says, what you're doing is exactly what they thought they were doing. They thought they were doing so that they may gain eternal life. But Jesus says, this is a futile search. It's a futile action. Because reading and studying the scripture is not an end to itself. It is a means to an end. You don't pick up the Bible. You don't pick up the word of God and say, I read the word of God. I guess I'm good now. The word of God is what, sh- is what shows us who God is and what he's done. It is what brings us to Christ. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3 that the, that the word of God, is the, the law of God is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The scriptures that these men were so busy studying, the laws that they were so desperately trying to uphold could never save them. Instead, these scriptures pointed to the one who was sharing these things with them that day. They testified of Jesus Christ, for he is the only hope of eternal life. Now, this is not to take away from the value of scripture. For indeed, it is necessary to read the scriptures in order to know God and to see the need of salvation from Jesus. You cannot know the message of salvation unless you read the scriptures. But we must understand to whom the scriptures point. And these men were unwilling to come to Jesus in faith to receive life. Therefore, they would not have eternal life. Because there is only life found in Jesus, the Son of God. The Bible was not given as a handbook on how to live in order to gain eternal life. The Bible was given as a mirror To show you an undeniable need for a Savior. And it was given as a signpost to point to Jesus Christ and say, this is the Savior. And all through the Old Testament, you read these things. You 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 read, especially in the law of God, and you say, man, who can do that? No one can. Not a single person can keep these things the way God said. And it points us forward and points us forward to Jesus And Jesus comes in the Gospels and you see the work that he does. He fulfills the word of God that he he has died and risen again. And all then throughout the New Testament after he has ascended into heaven, it, it says this is how you live in him. Without him there is no salvation. The evidence is presented and clear that Jesus is who he says he is. 
John, a recognized prophet. Jesus' display of power. God the Father's testimony and the written word of God all testify to Jesus' deity and his work. Yet Jesus has shown there's a pattern that has emerged. And it isn't that the evidence isn't there. The pattern is that they don't want to recognize and believe the evidence. And now Jesus shows the sad reality as we wrap up our passage today. We see the non-responsive hearts. A couple of things here. One, we see the replacement of truth with error. Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you. That you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Jesus states a solemn truth. That he is the son of God, he is God himself, he is the Messiah, he is the promised deliverer of mankind, and God, and God in the flesh, but mankind does not honor him as such. As John would record in John chapter 1, he came into his own, and his own received him not. They were beholding the Savior, yet they still did not recognize him. They were hearing the revelation of God, but they still did not believe. And if you look at these men who lived their lives devoted to the word of God, there's a verse, there's a a passage of scripture in the Old Testament that that is very critical and and very important to their lives. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And here's the thing about those guys. About those religious leaders that stood before him that day. They loved the law. They loved their traditions. They loved their self-righteousness. They loved their ideas of the Messiah. But they did not love God. And when we read the word of God, there is no other conclusion we should come to but worshiping Jesus as God. But like the religious leaders, many turn to this sin of rejection. And sadly, their hearts were empty of an all-consuming love for God. The supreme love of God commanded in his law was entirely absent. Therefore, they did not honor Jesus as they should. But they turned from the truth of who he is and instead embraced error. And that is how it always happens, by the way. If you're going to turn from the truth, you're going to replace it with something else. Jesus came in the name of God. He came in fulfillment of God the Father's eternal plan of redemption. He says that there. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. They do not recognize it. So then Jesus goes on, and he declares that if another one came glorifying himself and not God, they would recognize and receive him. Why? Because they were full of themselves. And so when another one would come 
full of himself, relating to them in the way that they always relate. Well, yeah, let's follow him. And you know what? That was a sad truth, and it eventually would come true. Because history records that in the years after Jesus' ascension and leading up to the Jewish revolt, which took place between 66 and 70 AD, there would actually be in the nation of Israel an increase of false messiahs. They would come proclaiming themselves, and the Jewish leaders and others like them would flock to these men. The scriptures tell us that this will happen again in the end times when the Antichrist appears. And it is little wonder, because these religious leaders were all about themselves. What appealed to them wasn't the truth of God, it was the pride of man. They could not believe because they were full of self-righteous pride and self-promotional behavior. They were constantly enamored with glorifying themselves. This is well recorded throughout the scriptures. They regularly used the law of God and their own man-made traditions to prop themselves up. And when Jesus appeared proclaiming the glory of God, they were not ready to receive him. Why? Because they were still full of their sin. They were full of themselves. Had they truly been consumed with the things of God and truly worshiping him, they would have recognized the glory of God in Jesus. And this is a dangerous replacement of truth with error, and it is still done today. If Jesus is not the Lord of your life, someone or something else is. We We're created at our core as human beings. We are created to worship. Who are we created to worship? We're created to worship God. But if we're not worshiping God and he is not the Lord of our lives, someone or something else is because we're created to worship. Usually we're worshiping ourselves. Usually we're, we're, we're following after whatever makes me happy, whatever I think I need to do to get ahead. Embracing Jesus as God is an inherently humbling experience. I mean, just imagine these religious leaders and everything they would have had to admit to embrace Jesus as God. Jesus is showing them they would have had to admit that everything they thought about the scriptures was wrong. That all of these things they had done, not out of worship of God, but out of self-righteous pride in order to gain eternity, they had to admit, you know what, that's not the way to eternity, he is. And all of these things that we said you had to do in order to be righteous with God, he is the one who fulfills them. And not that that, that keeping the law of God and following the things that that are found in the law, God God required that of his people, but not so they could gain eternity, but so they could worship him properly and see Jesus for who he is. Coming to Jesus and embracing him as God means we are declaring that there is nothing in us that is righteous. And this is the only way to salvation. Christian, this is the only way to sanctification. Jesus then goes on further in the rest of this passage, pointing out that these scriptures that they clung to so dearly also indicted them. Not only was there a replacement of truth with error, but they also failed the scriptures. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me. 
for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus now, as he closes these things, makes it very clear that he will have no need to accuse or prosecute them in the last day. That they have before them all the evidence they need to come to him for salvation, yet they reject him. And he turns now and says, you know what will prosecute you? You know what, 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 will, what, what will accuse you in the last day? That which you pride yourself in most, the law of Moses. God's revelation through Moses in the Pentateuch, and specifically in the sections of the law, are, are where the religious hierarchy of Israel placed their trust. They sought righteousness through the law. They aspired to keep these things perfectly, thinking they would gain favor with God. And to these men, what Jesus says in these last three verses is a shocking outrage. Because what they do is they affirm Moses as their teacher and their leader. They devote themselves to the law of God. And now Jesus tells them that everything you've devoted yourselves to not only won't save you, but it's actually going to condemn you. If they truly read and understood what Moses wrote, they would see the promise of the Messiah. They would see their sinfulness. They would see their ineptitude to save themselves. They would throw themselves on the mercy of God. But because they only saw an opportunity to feed their pride and self-righteousness, they did not truly comprehend nor believe what Moses had said. And if they had, Jesus says, you would have believed me. The teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus are inextricably linked. To reject one is to reject the other. To believe one is to believe the other. Yet so often, people read Moses and the rest of Scripture only to reject what it says and as well reject Jesus. The Word of God is an incredible gift. We read in its pages God's revelation of himself to us. He tells us who he is, who we are, how we got here, our greatest needs, how to have a relationship with him, how to live for him, and more. But the Bible is so much more than an entertaining piece of literature, an ancient text, a code of ethics, or a self-improvement guide. It is the living word of the living God. So therefore, we must approach it as such. One pastor said, it is one thing to have the word in our hands or our heads, but quite another thing to have it in our hearts. It is really hard sometimes to make the connection of what we know up here into what we believe right here and how we live it out. The religious leaders of Israel knew the scriptures. I'm telling you that they knew them better than anyone else in their day, humanly speaking. They, as Jews, had been the privileged recipients of God's word. He had revealed his word through their nation. They had been entrusted to copy it, to guard it, to know it. And they deftly defended their religion and their ways with the words that were written in the scriptures. But in sad reality, though they knew the words, they did not know the word of God very well at all. They crammed their minds full of the scriptures, and it didn't make an iota of difference in their hearts. And if they truly had known the word of God, they would have recognized who Jesus was. 
but they refused to do so, and instead, they hardened their hearts against him. They locked in on their own efforts. And friend, you and I, if we're not careful, we can treat the Word of God much the same. We academically read it. We hope to tickle some fancy of knowledge or in order to feel good that we've read it and we remembered something. We painstakingly look for little parts of the Word of God that may defend some self-righteous thought we've had. And let me tell you, there is certainly nothing wrong with knowing and reading and studying the Word of God. In fact, many people, many Christians, we could use an 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 uptick of our intake of the Word of God. If the only Bible you get every week is at church, you're not getting enough. And furthermore, if the only application of the Word of God to your life only comes at church, you're not getting enough. You need to know the Word of God for yourself. And that's why I've taken efforts here in our church to help you to have resources to study the Word of God. Because you need that. Reading just to read or reading just to get some facts isn't the same as reading to understand and know God more. The nature of your heart is revealed in how you approach God's Word. The Word of God should be approached with an open heart, asking God to use it in our lives. We analyze and study it, asking God to open our hearts and change us. And you know what? For anyone, that takes humility. That takes faith. That takes trust and complete dependent. And would you be willing to admit that it takes a little bit of ounce of discipline in your life? Because I don't know about you, but I work a lot of hours a week. You probably do too. I know many of you in this room and you work a lot. And you got kids and you got this and you got that and this and that. It takes a little discipline to sit down and read the Word of God. It takes more discipline to sit down and study the Word of God. But it's the most important thing you can do, is know God. Jesus' opponents failed the scriptures. They thought that they would be vindicated by the things that they had done, but they would one day stand condemned by them before their holy God. The evidence of Jesus' deity demands a verdict. And those in Jesus' day who had the answers before them failed to place proper faith in him. And friends, may we not fail to do the same. May we respond in faith in who Jesus is and then continue in faith, living in his power, claiming greater victory every day over sin by his grace. The clear evidence of Jesus' deity requires my personal response to him and does not excuse rejection. The evidence of Jesus' deity isn't just convincing, it's overwhelming. God has clearly shown us who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the Lamb of God, given to take away your sin. He is the Son of Man who will be your rightful judge. And one day you will stand before Jesus. And the only way to enter eternity is if you place faith in him alone to save you from your sin. The question is sometimes asked, how do you get to heaven? How do you know where you will spend eternity? And if your answer is anything except by placing faith in the finished work of Jesus, then your answer is not just lacking, it is wrong. You can't afford to be wrong on this one. 
As I said before, you can be wrong about a lot of things in life. You can be wrong about a lot of points and disagree a lot about a lot of doctrine, but you can't be wrong about this. Jesus is calling you, if you've never trusted him, to trust him today. And you and I, we, we cannot take and use our own worldview and presuppositions to make the Bible say what we want it to say. The religious leaders of Israel wanted the Messiah to fit their agenda. So therefore, they rejected Jesus when he came. You must instead interpret who you are and what you believe by what the Bible actually says. And Christians, the life of a disciple isn't an easy life. It's a struggle against sin. It's a life of commitment to Christ, whatever the cost, but it is a rewarding life. It is a life beyond compare because you walk, you walk it with the Savior of your soul. And sometimes, as Christians, we do what these religious leaders did. We take our eyes off of loving God above all else, and we put something else in its place. Oh no, you know, we wouldn't say it that way, right? But we live it. We profess to love God with all of our heart, and all of our soul, and all of our mind, but when it comes down to brass tacks, we really need to have this. Or, hey, I really need to be right about this. Or, I just really want to indulge in this. That is not the life of a devoted disciple. And it is these things that we must address in our lives with the help of God. The evidence of Jesus' deity demands a verdict. He calls you to himself for salvation. And he calls you to himself for your sanctification. And he promises to do the work in you. But you must submit yourself to him. And there is no greater joy than having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is no greater joy, Christian, than living a consistent relationship with Jesus Christ and following him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your house today and to study your word. Lord, I thank you that we have such a privilege to do this. And Lord, may we view it ever as such. There are brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who do not have nice places to meet, who do not have governments who allow them to do these things. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in our own congregation, in our own area, who because of illness, disease, age, can't even make it here to be with us today. Lord, we pray that you would give them grace today. Lord, we, help, we ask that you would help us to look at that from that perspective and see how wonderful it is to be in your house. Lord, may it not stop there. May you do a work in our lives today. May you convict us with the truth of who you are. May you exalt yourselves, yourself and glorify yourself in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would have the freedom to continue to convict of sin today, that you would draw those to yourself who do not trust you, and you would help us as Christians to see the sin that you have so clearly pointed out in our lives over and over and over again. And would you help us in humility to submit ourselves to you? We pray now as we prepare to wrap up our service today that you would be honored in the last things we say here, that you would be with us as we go home and come back tonight. 
that we would again come ready to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.